You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Ron. Hi, Robert. How are you? I'm doing fine. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. And you're Ron Campius. You're the Washington Bureau Chief for JTA, which stands for Jewish Telegraphic Agency. And as that name suggests, it's been around for more than a century. Yes. You have not been around for more than a century. However, you have for a long time uh, been covering politics related to Israel, among other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. And I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I tell you, I had the idea for this conversation. Yesterday, I taped a conversation with a Palestinian activist on the West Bank named Fadi Karan. And he was saying he thought that comparing this, uh, the current conflict, uh, to the 2014 conflict, he thinks something has changed on the Palestinian side. And he was talking about a kind of a more unified Palestinian consciousness. So we can, we can get into what he was talking about. But that led me to want to ask you about how you think this is being processed. Um, first of all, in Israel, and if you see much contrast there this time as compared to last, and then maybe we can get into uh, how it's being processed in the United States uh, a little, in the Amer- American public opinion and in the American um, political system. But for starters, do you just have any observations you, you want to articulate in general to this whole uh, this whole thing? Well, the most obvious one is that the uh, uh, the conflict is um, is inside Israel as well, or at least what was at first. I'm not sure if that's tapering down. To what degree it's tapering down? And um, uh, you know, I called my uncle yesterday. Maybe this is the best best way to explain it. And he's 95. He lives up north. There had been, you know, and I was in touch with my relatives in the other parts of the country, and they were doing fine, even though they were in shelters. But I'd heard that there were rockets coming from Lebanon. I just wanted to know that he was okay, and he was. He says that nobody's been asked to be put in shelters there. And we chatted, and he says, you know, we're resilient. This isn't going to affect us. Don't worry. And then I said, well, what about Akko? Which is where he lives, not not where he lives. It's near where he lives, and it's a it's a it's a Jewish Arab city. Uh and he said that's a wound that's going to take a long time to heal. That is terrible. That the wound of of Jews and Arabs in in street fights in places like Akko and Lod and uh, and Jaffa and Haifa. He said, yeah, and I and I think I understand that that hasn't happened. I've never heard of that happening. You know, my my time covering Israel, the 15 years I lived in Israel, there were like, there was like discreet intermittent reports like, um, of, you know, an attack on Jews who happened to drive in Umal Fahem or an attack on, on Arab Israelis who happened to be in Tel Aviv or in, a, in Netanya or something like that. But not this simultaneous rush of attacks from both sides. I'm not sure who's doing more. I don't think that's really the point of I'm trying to make the fact that they're happening mm-hmm. is just very, very unsettling to, uh, to at least to Israeli Jews, I'm sure to, uh, Israeli Arabs as well. I, I know to Israeli Arabs, I just haven't spoken with them personally yet, but I have friends who, uh, who are speaking to them, who are reporting on them. And that's hugely, hugely unsettling because, uh, as somebody put it, I, actually I have, what am I talking about? I did a report on this. I spoke to Israeli Arabs and as somebody put it, the, um, the, the, there was a year of a pandemic that really brought a lot of uh, 
the idea of equity between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs into the uh, into the narrative because of the you know if you've ever been in an Israeli hospital and I don't recommend getting injured in Israel which is what I did <laughs> to go into an Israeli hospital you see it as an o- oasis of equity there they treat each other as equals it's a uh, it's 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 so unique in within that oasis the the relationships that don't exist. And suddenly those relationships of first responders, of hospital workers, were pushed to the forefront, and they were on TV. And uh, and somebody might have been explaining the pandemic in Hebrew uh, and how to deal with the pandemic, and they might have had that slight Arab accent that you have when you're, when you're an Arab-Israeli and you speak Hebrew. And it meant a lot, and suddenly that was shattered. I mean, the, the people who do co- coexistence or shared society talk in Israel say that that was shattered. So I think that's the big difference here. Uh, how do you... How do you cope with that? Um, so can I, I can I interject and make sure I understand? So uh, the 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 sense of equity you were saying had existed in healthcare centers. I would assume was equity between Arab Israelis living in Israel proper and Jewish Israelis. My understanding of the inequity on the vaccine front, at least, had been between uh, Israelis, and I assumed both Jewish and and Arab Israelis on the one hand. And 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 Palestinians in the uh, in the West Bank on the other who were getting right. almost no vaccines. Is, right. I mean, I mean, in terms of the distribution of the vaccine, that is the big difference. But is the idea partly that this had really entered the consciousness of Palestinians, you know, Palestinian Israelis living in Israel? Yeah, I think it had. I mean, I think there was a degree of complaining because uh, you the. Um, it's it's kind of like a it's a it's a wrinkle inside a wrinkle in the sense that uh, the Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, were like the ultra orthodox one of the most vaccine skeptical groups, mm. and there was complaining from leaders within that community that uh, the Israeli authorities were not do it working as hard to dispel the skepticism among Palestinian Israelis as they were among ultra orthodox Israelis. Mm. But it was no, you know, the vaccines were no less available to the uh, to the Arab Israelis than they were to the uh, Jewish Israelis. So that was the one kind of wrinkle. But otherwise, yeah, certainly there there was a uh, there was anger that the Israelis were not uh, the Israeli side, the Israeli government side was not as proactive as it could have been in in terms of getting the vaccine to the Palestinians. The Israelis said that the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian government, was resistant, and then the Palestinian government said it wasn't resistant. But that was a um, that was certainly a, an, an issue there, for sure. So I, yeah, when I talk about equity, I'm definitely talking about, uh, you know, what the um, what Arab Israelis and those is Jewish Israelis who are invested in this issue have long cared about, which is trying to get some kind of equity going between the um, Arab and Jewish Israelis. And one thing I hadn't been aware of until now, and this came up in, a, you know, in Israeli reporting, I haven't, you know, I go there about like every 18 months and I hadn't heard about this was that just as there have been, you know, the Jewish settlement movement going into the West Bank and uh, encroaching on uh, Palestinian areas and the same thing happened in Eastern Jerusalem, there is, a, there is a movement, an initiative to kind of move into the Arab neighbors of, uh, of Jewish Arab cities and Arab neighborhoods of Jewish Arab cities and try and make them, those neighborhoods more Jewish. And that apparently has been stoking tensions. It's not something I was aware of. It happened, it's especially true in Lod, the city that's uh, near Tel Aviv, near the airport, and uh, and Ramla, I think. And that uh, that has uh, been an exacerbator 
as well. You know, the other big exacerbator is that, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you compare what's going on here in African-American communities. Uh, Arab-Israeli communities complain that they're not policed enough, that the police write them off. And there's a great deal of intercommunal violence or intracommunal violence there among Arab-Israelis. There's a lot of um, gendered violence uh, that they feel that the, the police is just ignoring, not dealing with. They don't want to, they want to block them off. They want to forget about them. And that is, that has been a problem. Uh, and that's also been an exacerbator, I think, of, uh, of a sense of marginalizations among, uh, over the years among some Arab Israelis. And like I said, the pandemic had gone some way towards sort of saying, Hey, this is a different path that we can go down. And now you have this, uh, this breakout of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was talking to Fadi yesterday, I mean, first of all, when he, when he talked about the more unified Palestinian consciousness, he was saying that both, both, uh, Palestinians in Israel proper and, and, and in the West Bank, um, seem more engaged in the reaction against, uh, you know, uh, the, the Israel's role in, in the Israel Gaza conflict. Uh, he mentioned, for one thing, a one-day strike that happened yesterday, right? Uh, which was apparently had a pretty big impact both in the West Bank and uh, in Israel, where Arab shopkeepers uh, closed their shops and so on. Um, but I think he also probably was referring to what you mentioned, the kind of civil conflict in Israel reflects, uh, you know, a certain kind of passion on both sides, probably. Maybe passion is too kind a word, but... But uh, it it it, uh, it it reflects a degree of uh, a kind of engagement in the in the issue. And when I ask him, well, why if things are suddenly different and there is this more unified Palestinian consciousness, what do you think the big issue? Well, why is it? And one of the one of the, I think the first thing he mentioned was the pandemic, was COVID, and the sense that he's living in the West Bank and 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 maybe speaking largely from that perspective. But apparently, the disparity in uh, in just the availability of vaccines between Israel proper and the West Bank uh, had had a big impact on um, Palestinian opinion. I, I'm kind of wondering uh, whether in Israel, you know, that gets, I, I wonder whether that was part of the discussion before. Like, were there many Israelis saying, you know, in the long run, it's just not good to make them hate us more, right? I mean, I, I have no idea whether whether that is, uh, I know there were some Israelis arguing for making vaccines more available, and I'm sure some were doing it on sheer health grounds, right? It's like these diseases are contagious. They live pretty close. Um, right. But I, do you have any sense for – I mean, there's a larger issue here that, that has to do with whether uh, Israelis are going to process this conflict as a victory or a setback. And, and, and the larger issue is to what extent do they think of hatred – among Palestinians, A, as a problem, and B, as something they can control much, that they can exert much influence on? So I think one of the successes of the right wing since the Second Intifada <coughs> has been limiting contact with, uh, uh, with Israelis, you know, in terms of between Palestinians and Israelis, which allows Israelis to forget about this, uh, you know, two, three million plus a population that's, you know, not even talking about the Israeli Arabs, but I'm talking about... Well, the separation bar barrier, the wall has had something to do with that, right? The separation barrier, absolutely. Uh, I think also the, uh, you know, I, I was in the, in 1989, uh, well, before before I joined the army, I joined the army in 19, late 1988, uh, the Intifada, the first Intifada had broken out 
And it was an intifada that was controlled by a, a civilian army, by people who were in the reserves, and you were facing it every day. Uh, and you were bringing home the stories. And, you know, there were people, it depends on your personality, there were people who were bringing stories home about hating the Palestinians, and there were people bringing stories home about understanding the Palestinians. And what it was I, what I found fascinating when I was in the army is that your, your political party didn't color that division. Uh, hmm. I found I was talking to right-wing people who were saying, you know, if I were in their situation, I would be doing the same thing at the time. And I think uh, that what happened is that the army, to a degree, has, well, partly because of the separation wall, and partly because of uh, a mechanization of, uh, of how the army works, partly because of, you know, better intelligence techniques, there's just fewer encounters like that between Israelis and Palestinians. So mm -hmm. a lot of Israelis have forgotten about this. And this is, serves as a big reminder that they're there. I don't know how that plays out, but does, does that play out in more, uh, in advocacy for more restrictive measures towards the Palestinians? Or does that play out in like, you know, we can no longer not deal with this? I mean, there's mm -hmm. a whole a generation has arisen, uh, that wasn't as traumatized by the second intifada as a generation who lived through it was, because remember the second intifada shifted from dealing with Israeli soldiers who were in the territories to attacking civilians uh, right. who were within the green line. I mean, there was a little bit of that in the first. Right. Intifada. And we should, be, we should be clear the, the, the intifada you were referring to earlier was largely about rock throwing on the West bank. Right. The second intifada, which is remembered uh, much more traumatically by Israelis who remember it involved uh, suicide bombs in Israel proper, Right. That started around 2001. Right. And yeah, so now before. you're saying, so this younger generation of, because, uh, you know, there's. Some, I want to get around to discussing the generational change uh, in American uh, Jewish attitudes, but, uh, uh, but w elaborate on that. So, so, so Israeli Jews who, who are too young to remember the second intifada uh, are, are, uh, uh, how, how, how does that influence their view of this? Well, we don't know yet. I mean, the, the, the truth is that the polling shows that they're more right wing, but that's because mm. the, the left wing in Israel has kind of, kind of disappeared after the second intifada. And the left wing in Israel, to the degree that it embraced, you know, the, to, to the degree that it surged in popularity and in attention, had to do with domestic issue, like the housing crisis in Tel Aviv in 2011. And there were, there were strikes of a, for the housing crisis and it actually elevated uh, some left wingers. Now, you know, I don't know to the degree to which that shifts in any way to their direction because of this outburst, because of, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a myth, I think, playing out. I've seen a little bit. I've seen on social media that Israelis aren't seeing the destruction in Gaza. Actually, they are. I've, I've watched the coverage. There is a big dialogue going on in Israeli media about, uh, the repercussions of the, um, uh, of the, of the airstrikes on Gaza and what's, the, what that's doing to Palestinians. And, you know, interestingly, what's playing out is that the Israeli media is bringing into the studios uh, Israeli-Palestinians, Arab-Israelis, to talk about that and talk about how they feel about that. And it's led to some very, very raw, even for Israeli television, which is always kind of raw, uh, very raw encounters between Jewish Israelis and Arab-Israelis who are saying, I can't stop thinking about being a Palestinian right now. And... um you're getting pushback. You're getting people. Not you're not getting the moderators say. At least in what I've seen, you the moderators aren't saying this, but the uh, the other side is saying, well, that makes you a traitor if you're identifying with the Palestinian side. And they're, the other the Arab is really saying, these are my people. You know, I can't I can't not identify them and with their with their suffering. So it it is and entering 
the Israeli consciousness. And I don't know the what degree to which that affects people who haven't been traumatized by the attacks on civilians of the um uh, that happened during the 2000s young people who have i don't know how it affects people who have processed that and like i said it might draw that drive them to be more hawkish less accommodating or it might or the big you know the scenes of the devastation in the gaza strip um the uh the claims of the palestinians the reluctance to identify i mean there's a uh, you know, there's a, there have been f- filming, you know, there was a, the, the night I watched what there was a, the, the, uh, Israeli government broadcaster called Khan in this encounter kept on showing on a loop the pictures of the Jewish, uh, Israelis in Batyam dragging an Arab driver out of his car and beating him unconscious. Hmm. And there was, there, there was, you know, you could see that the anchors, the Jewish anchors were appalled by that action. You could see that coming across to a degree. Even amongst extreme right-wing politicians who reacted to the footage, who were um, appalled by it, does that you know, does, is that the thing that's going to linger in their mind? Is the uh, the the child who was near Gaza, the Jewish child who was near Gaza, who was killed, is that going to linger in their mind? Is it going to be a meld or what kind of conversation going forward? I'm not sure is is what happens, but it's certainly they're not blocking it from their consciousness at least right now. The the the, the Palestinian narrative, at least. They're, well, I think it, with it. isn't it a source of deep concern among a lot of Israeli Jews that this could be a sign of things to come? I mean, I would even think it might uh, it might influence kind of the decision making paradigm next time uh, Israel is deciding whether to launch an assault on Gaza. I, I mean, it, it's uh, it, it's got to it's got to factor in on on the cost side, because I, I think, as you said, there's nobody anywhere along the Israeli political spectrum um, that thinks it would be good for their interests for there to be ongoing civil strife in in Israel, right? Or, or who thinks it would be good for Israel broadly? I mean, I think there are people on the extreme right who would uh-huh. think that, but otherwise, even you know, maybe like the extreme, even the extreme right has sort of uh, degrees, and so yeah. uh, you know, you have this alignment of. Uh, very far right wing parties that uh, Netanyahu made peace with before the elections and in order to have a vote exchange thing. And that caused all sorts of consternation uh, overseas and within Israel. But even within that constellation, there's like the guy named Betzalel Smotrich who put out the statement saying, this is not me talking about the Arab who was beaten in Batya. This is bad. Uh, uh, but then there is like another party that's even further to his right, who's part of that little constellation. They are um, aficionados of Kach. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Meyer mm-hmm. Kahane. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure they wouldn't be too unhappy with this, uh, uh, with this because they I mean, you know, part of Kahane's thing is like all radicals. He wanted to stoke division. He wanted to stoke, uh, mm-hmm. uh, hatreds. And so, um, he, yeah. they, they might be okay with this, but you're right. I think aside from that, uh, across the spectrum, nobody wants this to, to continue. Yeah. So uh, the conventional, uh, wisdom is kind of that, uh, as a political matter, this has helped Netanyahu. He was, of course, in a precarious situation. Uh, he couldn't he couldn't manage to assemble a coalition, and they kept, you know, trying things, having new elections. I guess I, I haven't been keeping track, uh, but I know he had not managed to uh, 
consolidate his role, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and ensure that he would remain prime minister. And of course, he has a deepened incentive to do so by virtue of the fact that if he doesn't, he may wind up in jail because, uh, he's, uh, he's being pro- prosecuted. I guess oddly, he's actually being prosecuted while in office, but it, but he, won't go to prison if he's in office or something like that. I, I don't understand it exactly, but if, so if he's convicted, he'll go to prison. He if will, even yeah. as prime minister. Yes, he can't. He can't. He's trying to get the law changed, so he can't. But as the law currently, currently stands, yeah, he'll he'll go to jail if he's convicted. For or so, he'll, he'll, he'll have to leave office in any case, whether or not he goes to jail. Uh, do you agree with people who say this has been good for him politically, and now he uh, leaving aside the prosecution? This increases the chances that he can remain prime minister for some time to come. Uh, I don't know. I think that there, you know, it, it's a complicated question because one of the reasons that he is popular in times of conflict is that he's able to actually stem the conflict. So if you know, if he actually pulls this off and he manages to make it look like a win, yeah, it's good for him. You know, and especially if they go to a fifth round of elections in two years, uh, and then he, he has that to build on. The problem, you know, the paradox for him is that he has to. The, 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 you know, the, the, if he wants to, to draw things out, I forget how many more days or weeks that, uh, Yair Lapid has to form a government, then he has to drag it out. And then that, but that paradoxically makes him look uh, like he's not able to control the conflict. They, you know, the thing about Netanyahu that Israelis actually do understand people is he's, he, he is traditionally quite cautious. He doesn't, he tried to wrap up the 2014 and 2012 wars very quickly. He, he actually, he says he's not talking to Hamas. Eventually, essentially, did talk to Hamas in ways that maybe, you know, people to his left in the prime ministership might have not have been as confident enough to do. And he he brought it to an end. So that, you know, that's the paradox. Now he can bring it to an end quickly, but then he still he goes back into a situation in which he's vulnerable. If he can drag it out, but then he's he's made to look as if he's a warmonger, even among Israelis. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how he deals with that. That's interesting. But for now, it's actually better news in the sense, yes, that. There are right-wing parties, uh, and there was an Arab party that they were linked, willing to live together in, just in order to oust Netanyahu. That's less viable now for right-wing leaders in uh, Israel, and it's also less viable for um, Mansour Abbas, the leader of Man, the, uh, mm-hmm. the Arab party, because of what's going on. But in any event, uh, I assume the great bulk of uh, Jewish-Israeli opinion holds that the the response which you know is considered disproportionate in a lot of parts of the world is fully justified the uh the 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 ongoing uh kind of assault on Gaza I think so far yes I think that once they start picking through the uh you know there might be more dissent once they start picking through the details of when get what went on but um Israelis definitely see this as separate from the ostensible trigger for Hamas which was the the tensions in Jerusalem uh, there, there's no way, I don't think that there's, there are very many Israelis who would rationalize Hamas lock, you know, launching rockets, mm-hmm. uh, inside Israel and areas of the country that have nothing to do with Jerusalem on civilians, killing civilians as an, uh, as a, uh, justifiable reaction to, uh, to the whole business in Jerusalem, which we haven't discussed yet. But yeah, they, uh, yeah. whereas, you know, the, um, I think that uh, if you look at the, you know, if you look at the narrative that people are are talking about, people who are critical of Israel, they do see that they do start with Jerusalem and go to uh, and then go to Hamas firing rockets and then Israel reacting disproportionately right. or not. 
but that's not a that's not something Israelis understand or want to understand or, or you know and they you know there's I, I can see why because it's it's just a, it's it's just one thing's happening here and there is a protest and you, and you saw in fact there was a brief moment after Hamas started firing rockets that uh, the Palestinians who were protesting in Jerusalem were really very upset with Hamas because they said now you've uh, you know whatever like moral and uh, political momentum we had with our protests in Jerusalem. That's gone. Um, hmm. So and I, I think Israelis would tend to see that the same the same way. So uh, in America, you've had some traditionally, uh, you know, very pro-Israel commentators. Like I think Max Boot say not 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 say well the, the Hamas was justified in firing the rockets, but I think suggesting I'm not sure he said exactly this, but saying that. It should have been predictable that when, for example, you send police into Al-Aqsa Mosque firing rubber bullets, that's probably going to be a red line for Hamas. They're probably uh, going to have to fire some uh, missiles, uh, either feeling the political pressure at the grassroots level or wanting to take advantage of it politically. But but for whatever reason, that that should have been predictable. That's yeah. that's more what I'm hearing from some corners in America, leaving aside who's justified in doing what. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, I think that will be the, uh, that could be the case in Israel as well. And there are people who are talking, I think you, t- you talked, you posted the other day uh, an interview you did with Danny Seidemann, who's one of the smartest people on Jerusalem. And, you know, the way he puts it is, uh, Jerusalem's a de- detonator, but the bomb always can go off elsewhere. Sometimes it actually goes off in Jerusalem, but, you know, this time, the de- you know, Jerusalem was a detonator. And, and, and absolutely, I think that there are, there, I, you know, I just don't know to what degree that the Israelis, you know, Jewish Israelis will see it, but there was certainly, there was certainly massive clumsiness going on, uh, in the, uh, uh, in Jerusalem with like just raiding the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the whole business of cutting off the, uh, the speakers because the Israeli president was addressing Israelis at the Western Wall on Memorial Day. Um, it's just, those are the things people having, when you talk about the West, Western Wall and you talk about the, the uh, Haram al-Sharif, the Muslim holy area, also known as a Temple Mount that overlooks the Western Wall, you throw rationalization out of the window, and it's just uh, the, the, those kinds of pictures. Yeah, are gonna are are, are definitely uh, a trigger, and they're going to uh, to bring out uh, ir- irrational responses. I mean, what I was talking about was, I don't, I think that there is going to be there might be repercussions among Israelis. We'll see in terms of. The, you know, Netanyahu getting into bed with extremists, looking the other way as extremists did what they did in Jerusalem. But it might be harder, I think, for Israelis to to regard the reaction to the rocket fire as disproportionate simply because, mm-hmm. you know, it's driving them into shelters. Uh, it's uh, the, the numbers are obviously hugely different. You're talking about over 200 people now. Uh, right. I think it's close to 300 dead on the Palestinian side and 12 dead on the Israeli side. But still, they. They they see the threat. They they want their government to react to it. Mm-hmm. So, do you have any sense for? I mean, this will ultimately factor into what we're talking about. But how the world's reaction, including the reaction in America, how that is factoring into uh, how Israelis and especially Jewish Israelis process this this whole thing, because. At least in America, you know, some people are are noting uh, that things seem to be changing. Uh, younger Jews are are 
are not so pro-Israel in the way that maybe their parents were, on average, many are, but still there is this shift. You have these these young groups like, uh, if not now, you know, these gr- groups of young progressives, very active online. There was an article today um, about how uh, some, like, teens, I think, like high school students, and these were not all Jewish, uh, but still it's significant, I think, who had helped Ed Markey get elected. They were like his grassroots gang because they were very aware of his pro-environmental positions. And then only in the last few days, they found out that he says, you know, about Israel, the kinds of things most American politicians say, which is like Israel has a right to defend itself. And they've gotten all, they've gotten all upset. I, there are, so there are a number of indicators that in America, there may be, uh, change, including, uh, within the realm of Jewish opinion as the generations pass. And then they're, you know, they're not unrelated things like the Human Rights Watch report saying Israel is uh, guilty of apartheid. I'm sure you remember that, you know, 15 years or so ago when Jimmy Carter came out with a book, I I think kind of just saying, not so much saying Israel was guilty of apartheid, but that it shouldn't, it shouldn't, it should make, make sure it doesn't get to apartheid. He had to walk, walk that back just for like using the word. He called me. (laughs) Did he? Jimmy Carter? He he called you for what? I got a call saying this is Jimmy Carter's secretary. He's online. He wants to talk to you. He wanted to, he wanted to talk about like repentance for using that word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he's Protestant, so he didn't have a priest he could go to for confession. I guess that was your job. Right, I guess. Uh, did he what? Did he also want you? To, I mean, he was hoping you would write about it, probably. Yeah, right? no, he, 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 you know, I, I think basically the story was Abe Foxman. He reached out to Abe Foxman and said, best do this through the media. I think you should do it through JTA. Here's Ron Campion. It was like Christmas holiday, so nobody was mm-hmm. at home except for me, you know, working. And so I got a call. Uh, this is Jimmy Carter. Um and so, yeah, he he wanted to uh, to say that he read it using the term because he thought maybe it was premature. But you're absolutely right. He wasn't even talking about Israel being an apartheid, having apartheid. He was talking about the dangers. He was he, he was he was saying as an American former American president what Ehud Barak had said in 1999, and you know others have said that you know, there's a danger that we could uh, become uh, apartheid, yeah. get into an apartheid situation. Except for some reason, it's kosher for Israelis to say fuck. Not kosher, never understood but that, now but. suddenly it's kosher for Americans. I mean, you're right. seeing it said in the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, Bet is it Bet Salam? I don't know how you pronounce the name Bet of Salem, the, right. the the Israeli uh, human rights organization is is saying it. So, so there is, uh, and all of the other thing that's happening is, I think, uh, uh, within the Palestinian community, certainly, is less and less discussion of a two state solution, more discussion of a one state solution, which Israelis, you know, don't even want to talk about. Um, so, so there are these changes, at least on the American side. I didn't know to what extent there's change, say in Europe, which has always been less uh, pro-Israel than than America. Um, but do you get the sense that Israelis are cognizant of this and concerned about it? Oh, absolutely. I think yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, the one thing, the one one thing I would tell you, you, you mentioned like young Jewish groups, like if not now, that doesn't register as much. I think you know that one of the uh, things, uh, the, the saddest things that have gone on is like the, you know, the Israelis have cared less about diaspora when the leadership is concerned about it. They actually set up a diaspora ministry. There's a fascinating woman, uh, an ultra orthodox woman, um, named Omer Yankalevich, who is a diaspora minister. She wants more Israel diaspora interaction. I'm interviewing her on Monday about that. <laughs> That's a separate thing, but 
just to get back to your point, absolutely. They are, if you at least a talking heads class. And I, you know, for actually from my visits, the street class as well, the Israelis in the street, the Israelis, everybody is very cognizant of American support for Israel and, uh, and how important it is. And the, the news they're getting, you know, which I'm hearing, like, uh, when I listen to Israel radio or watch Israel TV here is about how Democrats, uh, particularly are, um, are growing away you know, from their traditional pro-Israel posture. I think that they see, the Israelis see that the squad is as being much more influential than it is, but they also see that pressure, so that, you know, they, they, they talk a lot about the squad in Israel, but, I mean, it, it's no longer, whereas six months ago, I would say, oh, you know, they're, 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 they're overly concerned about uh, four congresswomen, it's not just four congresswomen anymore. I mean, I think one of the most significant things you had this week was uh, Gregory Meeks, uh, who replaced Elliot Engel when Elliot Engel was ousted by a squad member last year in a primary. Hmm. He replaced Elliot Engel as chairman of the uh, Foreign Relations Committee, Foreign Affairs Committee in the House. And so, you know, it was it, where there was jockeying to be the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And it was down to, uh, um, you know, Queen... Castro, I forget, or, or I think, yeah, it's Joaquin Castro, and to uh, um, Brad Sherman, um, who's very traditionally pro-Israel, and Gregory Meeks. And, of course, it's leadership who decides, but it's, uh, you know, it's Nancy Pelosi who, who essentially decides who gets the chairmanship, and there's a vote within the caucus, but there is there is a, a look at the various interest groups that have, and they, and they all audition, and it is what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to get around to say, they all audition, they audition for J Street, which is all for pressure on Israel, and they audition for Democratic Majority for Israel, which is not for any kind of pressure for Israel. And uh, and those groups invited reporters to listen in on those auditions. Um, not By all auditions, them, you mean like the candidate, the people who want to be chairman of the committee will come talk to these groups, and the groups will... Okay. Yeah. So it was all on Zoom, and uh, it was done... I think uh, DMFI, the the kind of uh, traditionally pro-Israel kind of APAC aligned group, allowed reporters to listen to all three. J Street allowed them into one. And um, Gregory Meeks was like, you know, Israel, assistance to Israel is unassailable, as was Brad Sherman. Castro was a little more um, equivocal on that. But Gregory Meeks got it, and he said that equi- uh, assistance to Israel was unassailable. And then this week, he was all set to write a letter to uh, the State Department saying, can you delay this uh, transfer of $735 million worth of uh, precision-guided missiles for about a week? They're not due to arrive for another year, but he just wanted the whole process delayed for a week while we have a chance to look at it. And in the end, he withdrew the letter, but he withdrew it because he he said that... um, we have got uh, now because we've raised this kerfuffle, we've actually got the Biden administration saying they're going to give us more oversight of this. They're going to send people over to us to talk about it. And <laughs> but Israel and, you know, and every other, you know, he made it clear every other recipient of U.S. military aid, ally or not ally, whatever. But Israel and everybody else should know that we are going to be looking at this more closely from now on. And now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is trying to move a joint resolution that would actually stop the transfer. I don't think she's going to get anywhere with that. But just the fact of Meeks six months ago saying assistance to Israel is unassailable and now saying, you know what, we want to take a second look. That's a big deal. 
And it's something and, that Israelis are noticing. You know, and what forces do you think he's responding to? What What was he seeing, feeling? Who was he hearing from? And you're, and it's probably a guess largely, but why do you think he he at least hesitated? I think that he's just seeing that you know he's seeing American public opinion is is among Democrats is you know they see the image of what's going on on uh, you know in Gaza and whether you know we can have a separate philosophical discussion as to what's justified or not but they see that and they and they and they they want to they're questioning why American material material is being used to carry out those uh, those operations and I think that. Uh, uh, I think that the grassroots, the pro-Palestinian grassroots or the Palestinian sympathetic grassroots has become more pronounced. I think it becomes much more difficult in a post-police uh, brutality environment, Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter environment, to countenance that kind of imagery. Uh, you know, and I will be the first to argue that they're two completely different things, you know, not not necessarily morally, but just tactically, they're completely different things. But Imagery is imagery. It's what sticks in your head. And when you see a, uh, a police action have a terrible effect on civilians and you're sensitized to that, and Americans have become much more sensitized to that in the last, you know, ever since George Floyd and before George Floyd, frankly, going back to Ferguson in 2015, um, you know, and he's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, though there'll be those sensibilities as well at play. So I think that all that comes into it, and that's... Uh, and that helps, in, in, you know, that helps bring about the shift. And not just with Gregory Meeks, you see it with the entire party. I mean, and, you know, the other thing, uh, Israelis don't pay attention to this, I think they should, is you've got 25 Jewish Democrats in the House. Twelve of them signed a letter saying there should be an immediate ceasefire. And everybody starts these letters by saying Hamas's attacks are completely unconscionable, blah, blah, blah. But then they get to the part where they say that Israel's reactions have been causing a lot of, of devastation and there has to be an immediate ceasefire. And that's so 12 Jewish members out of 25 Democrats in the House are saying that. And John Ossoff, who's Jewish from Georgia, is leading a letter from 28 Democrats overall in the um, in the Senate saying the same thing. And, you know, the, the, the significance of 12 in the House is they're saying as Jewish members, they actually start like that, as Jewish lawmakers. Mm-hmm. And they're saying that. And I think that that, uh, that gives somebody like Gregory Meeks a license to say, you know, because that's how Congress works. It's interest-based. If you always go to you know, the first people you go to. You know, the big crisis for this is APAC, I think, because the first you know the any lobby, the first um, the first lawmakers they always come to are the ones that share uh, their in- interests. So um, you know, if you're if you're a coal uh, if you're a coal miner, you know, if you run a coal mine, you're going to go to the, the lawmakers from West Virginia. If you're APAC, you're going to go to the Jewish lawmakers. And now. 12 of the 25 Democrats in the House are saying, you know, we're not listening. <laughs> that's a, that's a whole separate crisis that's going to be interesting for the, the pro-Israel mm-hmm. community. That's, uh, that's interesting that Israelis aren't necessarily aware of, but they are definitely aware that they are losing it's Democrats. It's funny. I mean, I was kind of feeling unconvinced that anything fundamental has changed in American politics. And I mean, so for example, when, when Meeks wound up not really putting a hold on the on the arms transfer i took that as a sign that maybe he felt pressure a little pressure from the other side and kind of wanted to get out of the thing and he could claim that biden said something or other also i mean biden himself uh has now you could argue that he's just a little slow on the uptake or something but 
He certainly has didn't early on seem to put uh, much pressure on Netanyahu. Now he right. did have the you know Rashida Tlaib uh, had a kind of I guess showdown with him. I mean they had a very uh, a very passionate uh, discussion for a few minutes. She has a grandmother I think who lives in the West Bank, and um, and it was after that I don't know if coincidentally that that he seemed to take a harder line with Netanyahu and. I don't know how far it got him. I mean, uh, judging by today's reporting, so he his people let it be known that he had told Bibi he expects de-escalation today, and then yeah. Bibi Bibi's people let it be known that Bibi will do whatever the hell he wants to do. As I understand today's right. reporting, right? Right, right. So uh, I don't I don't see I don't see the Biden administration terribly fearful of some kind of new progressive energy that's skeptical of Israel or anything. And, and in any event, I, I don't see him succeeding uh, in having much influence on Bibi. What, what's your take on that? Uh, yeah, I think, first of all, don't discount uh, Biden's personal involvement. I mean, he's like, he's maybe be, he may be the president uh, personally who's most invested in the pro-Israel cause over the years. I mean, even more than, much more than Donald Trump. Donald Trump, hmm. You could say even came by it opportunistically to a degree. Uh, he wasn't even aware of it until he became, you know, he was elected president. He wasn't that aware of it. Um, Biden has been around since, you know, was elected in 1972. I think his first foreign trip was to Israel on the eve of the Yom Kippur War in 1973. He has an encounter with Golda Meir that he loves to talk about, and which he, you know, he's just deeply, deeply emotionally invested in the whole thing, etc. A lot of his most, uh, Important donors of people who've been most loyal to him, Michael Adler, a Florida guy, uh, who backed his 1988 presidency. I think he was his campaign finance chair, was certainly, you know, instrumental in his 2008 and his 2020 runs. Uh, is very part, much part of the pro-Israel community. Uh, so I think that's, you know, that's part of it. That helps feed it. Also, just not wanting to, uh, be caught up in the, the, the sort of the way that, um, Obama was ended up depicted as kind of, uh, un, Insensitive, even though, you know, there was a lot of things that Obama did that were very pro-Israel. Iron Dome. He, Iron Dome, absolutely. He, he, he initiated funding of Iron Dome. It didn't come from Congress first. It came from the, uh, it came from the executive branch. Um, and, uh, so he just doesn't want to have that stigma. He's, he's, he's treading very carefully there. And frankly, I think that, you know, they just is, this is Chinatown for this gang. <laughs> they don't want to go back there. Uh, if you talk to individuals, with a couple of exceptions, but if you talk to individuals, people, you know, the same people who were involved in the two efforts by the Obama administration to bring out Israeli-Palestinian peace, the same individuals in 2009 and 2013-14, 2009-10, they were burned. Before this happened, they said, that's you know, we, don't, we just don't want to deal with it. Uh, if it if it happens, by they you mean a number of people now in the Biden administration? Yeah, yeah. what Blinken, have, Sullivan, what? Well, I, I you know I, I don't know, but well, I mean, I think Terry, Terry certainly, but yeah, yeah, I think that these you know if you talk to uh, people a little lower down, you're you're getting like this, um, or even like their equivalents, you know, and and probably them as well. I think Jake Sullivan for sure, for sure, and that not I haven't spoken to him, but I would get the impression. They didn't want to deal with this. If, you know, if it happened organically, if it came up, uh, I mean, that's how the, the biggest success of Middle Eastern peace worked. In 1979, uh, Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin started talking to one another, and then they went to Carter and they said, we've got these gaps, can you wrap them up? And Carter came in, and I'm making it sound a lot easier than it was, but he produced the most long-lasting, successful peace 
in the uh, in the Middle East by doing that. And so that's what they wanted. They said, you know, when you're ready, come back to us and we'll help you bridge the gaps. And you're probably not going to be ready for a long time because Abbas and Netanyahu definitely weren't ready. Um, but now they're dragged back into it. So I think that that has a lot, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're feeling their way into how to solve this, uh, this issue. So I think that that's accounts for the hesitancy. I don't think, you know, in terms of feeling any pressure from the left, from progressives, I don't know if the, you know, I don't know if Biden's really feeling that yet. I mean, he's like, um, he has had a kind of honeymoon with progressives because they see him as so surprising on, as you know, it's like all these domestic fronts, including, um, uh, you know, the stimulus package, uh, trying to get uh, child, uh, the child credit, uh, made permanent to that, all those kinds of things. And so they're, you know, they're kind of willing to forgive him on, on things that he's not as, uh, accelerated on. And the other thing that's interesting about the whole, if you watch progressives, they say, if you bring pressure on Biden, he'll eventually change his mind. The most famous case, uh, case of that is the refugees. He, fi- he finally returned to his promise on the refugees. So they, they could also maybe holding back some of the pressure because they want, uh, they're, they're thinking that maybe he'll eventually come around on this in, in any case. But um, yeah, that's so, what I, so. So to get back to the way this feeds back on uh, Israeli opinion, do you think this... Uh, makes them worry more about the costs, the political costs to them of sustaining the the conflict right now? And and perhaps uh, if they have the choice down the road uh, of of having another conflict? I think definitely, like I said, on the um, on the talking head level, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, there was this whole controversy over confirming Colin Cowell. It's weird how... Senate confirmations become proxy battles for all these ideological things that don't really have to anything to do with the individual being confirmed. Colin Cowell is a fairly pro-Israel character who helped shepherd through Iron Dome, but because he became identified with the Iran deal, you had all these conservatives trying to kill him. You had these all these uh, uh, progressives defending him. And um, and what was interesting is that I, three generals who worked with Colin Cowell when he was working for Obama reached out to me. Uh, and they said, you know, we have, we, we don't see anything wrong with Colin Cowell. In fact, he's somebody who's been, you know, and let's be clear. This is Colin K A H L. It sounds a little like Colin Powell, Cowell, right? right sorry. Different, different guy, different uh, guy. Who, who worked on, on, I guess the Iran deal. And, uh, did he wind up? He did. So did he make it he into the Biden? He's in. He's he was in. confirmed. Okay. So yeah. he's in. He was controversial. Uh, uh, he took pressure from the right. So he's now in the Pentagon, right? He's in. And the three Israeli generals, I mean, you know, they, they talked to me about their personal interactions with Colin Cowell, whom they all liked, and they all said was a good listener. That was their, you know, their takeaway. But the other thing, the other undercurrent, and they all brought up was like, why are we pissing off the Biden administration? He's the president, you know? Uh, if he was, I mean, what was unspoken is like, yeah, if he was introducing somebody who was truly toxic, maybe that would be something, a reason to speak up. But why are supposed friends, you know, the pro-Israel community in the States, why are they invested in alienating this guy who is actually, who we actually can work with? Mm-hmm. And so that mentality, so that's that. And I think that that mentality, um, could manifest certainly in, um, in how, you know, in dealing with the Biden administration. Now, so Netanyahu can say all he wants. We're going to do as much as we want, but let's see what happens on Thursday. I think that there is, you know, there's already talk of a winding down. Uh, Netanyahu could say, like, I, you know, I, I, I told Biden off or whatever, 
but quietly wind things down because he wants to uh, extricate from this. You know, on the other hand, I have to say that Netanyahu is probably maybe the one person who, I mean, he said it out loud that he thinks that he can, he's capable of manipulating American public opinion. Uh, and he isn't, but he's kind of deluded himself into thinking mm-hmm. he, he is. So uh, I he don't was, know if he has that reaction. He was caught we'll on video saying that to some settlers when I don't think he knew he was being videoed. <laughs> right, basically right. saying he can get America to do anything he wants. This was a long time ago. Right. But it, he still believes it, whether yeah. even after that came out and he was ridiculed for it because that, that's the exact mentality was behind his 2015 speech to Congress uh, criticizing Obama's Obama-Iran policy, which was catastrophic for the relationship with Democrats. I think that that is the pivotal moment that uh, Netanyahu began to lose Democrats. Yeah. So, um, so it does matter. Uh, it registers on Israeli public opinion. I gather both kind of popular opinion and elite opinion when America's support seems to be slipping. I'm wondering if that's kind of a separate issue in their minds from what the rest of the world thinks of them. I mean, sometimes tell me if this is too simple a model. Sometimes I think a lot of people in Israel think, look, as far as Europe's opinion of us, the world's opinion of us, they're always going to hate us. Uh, and we got to do what we got to do. Got to mow the lawn every once in a while. And the premise behind that is kind of Palestinians are always going to hate us, right? There's never going to, you know, we shouldn't invest too much in trying to, to fine tune their, their opinion of us because in the long run, that's a long shot. You got to assume they'll hate us. Most of the world will hate us. So we do what we have to do militarily, regardless of how it seems to register on world opinion. But America, but 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 this this uh, relative uh, indifference to world opinion is related to a dependence on American opinion, right? In other words, we've always got America. And tell me that that must be too simple a model. But tell me in what ways it's too simple a model of, of how Israel processes this stuff. I think it's it's not too simple a model. I think that that's a big uh, part of it. I think absolutely. They, um, I would say two things. I think that Israelis, uh, and I wrote this on Twitter the other day. I think structurally, they are ready for a world in which nobody likes them. You know, they they mm-hmm. used to talk about. They used to joke in the eighties, like they used to criticize each other, saying, you know, what you're doing is going to isolate so uh, so much. We're going to be Albania, and that was not the nice uh, the nice welcoming country that I can tell you Albania is right now because I've been there. <laughs> but that was the. Uh, because uh, I really don't want to offend Albanians. <laughs> that was the country of Enver Hoxha, who was like one of the most isolating leaders of the world. Why do you want us to become Albania? But under, under, you know, underwriting that claim, like, don't let us become Albania was actually, we're capable of, you know, worst comes to worst, absolute direst scenario. We can be Albania. We'll survive. We'll survive. Um, so there's that, even like if they lose America. And the other thing is like, I, I think that there's also, um, you know, they say that, you know, as long as we have America, we're okay, but they're also thrilled when they get friendly, um, um, you know, they get love from other parts of the world. You saw that with the Abraham Accords last year with, uh, you know, the people flooding Dubai after the, uh, after mm-hmm. the relations were open between the United Arab Emirates and, and Israel. You see that in like their eagerness to win the Eurovision Song Contest because that's really a country popularity thing and they, they get very excited about that. You saw that in the seventies when like, uh, Miss Israel became Miss Universe or something. I, I think Miss World or Miss Universe, whichever one it was. Um, and so there's that as well. I think that there's like, you know, everybody wants to be loved. Even if you can be Albania, even if you know you're capable of being Albania, you want to be loved. And so there's that. So they're not entirely immune to that. And the other, 
the other factor is that, uh, you know, America's fine. Having America is great. But in terms of trade, you want Europe. You know, they're just across the, the Mediterranean. They're right next door. And that's what's fantastic about – that's what one thing that, you know, Netanyahu is in terms of being a, a successful leader of his country, he, de- he gets – he deserves credit for. He's actually expanded a lot of trade opportunities for Israel and Africa, countries where Israel that Israel can easily you know mm-hmm. Israeli companies can easily reach and um and and you could you should see you can see the uh, uh the Abraham accords in the four countries that have been affected in, in those terms as well commercial opportunities and so obviously Israelis like any other people they care about that as well mm-hmm. they want uh, easy and accessible markets but but if if uh if they, if just to focus on the Palestinian part of opinion, if their view is that like Palestinian hatred of them is kind of a universal constant, right? Like, uh, there's no point in thinking seriously about, uh, engineering a fundamental change in attitude. Uh, I mean, if that's the belief, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm kind of caricaturing it, but to the extent that that's a belief, uh, things just don't seem to look bright for any kind of long-term actual resolution of that problem, right? Because, I mean, honestly, it's not that easy to envision one anyway, right? I mean, right. uh, because the, the, you know, uh, the, 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 with more and more settlements in the West Bank interconnected by these highways and the shifts in politics in, in Israel and so on, a two-state solution seems to more and more people, uh, too remote to take seriously. And then, of course, a one-state solution, uh, I, I, I think Israel is nowhere near uh, contemplating. Um, right. So, am, am I right there that uh, that uh, leave aside Palestinian opinion and and there are there are issues there as well? But just in terms of current Israeli opinion about Palestinian opinion, uh, do, does that itself make resolution anytime soon uh, implausible or even even really appreciable movement toward resolution? I think it's split. I think, you know, you, you saw during the Oslo process an acceptance of the idea that the Palestinians might want to coexist, uh, that, like I said, diminished certainly during the second intifada. Um, and, you know, the Israelis don't necessarily distinguish so much between Israeli Arab and the Palestinians. And so that might be shifting in the sense that there is, there absolutely persists. You're right. This idea that we could never well, they'll never accommodate us. We always have to have some degree of control over them because they're never. I mean, that Netanyahu says that he could never give up security control over the West Bank for exactly that reason. He cannot trust the Palestinians to be a buffer against a threat from the east. Um, so there absolutely is that attitude. I don't know how pervasive it is. I don't know how pervasive it remains. One of the weirdest, not weirdest, one of the most interesting things I saw from recently is you saw. Not only did you see Jews joining in this massive action yesterday, not only did you see, you know, have you seen Jews and Arabs going out to intersections and holding hands and being part of that? No, no wait, what, what massive action are you talking the, about? Uh, the Palestinian strike, the cross uh, Palestine. Oh, you saw Jews uh, joining hands with, with them in some sense. You're right. You okay. saw like a, you know, Israel has three major cellcom outlets, sorry, cell, cell, uh, cellular phone outlets. One's called Cellcom. And they uh, they struck for an hour. Management organized a strike by to to, to express solidarity with Israeli Arabs. Th- these are Jews who who yeah yeah a Jewish mm-hmm. owned company, a Jewish employers. I'm sure also Arab Israeli employers. 
they they took a they and it, it's just it's an interesting thing to see in the corporate sector. It's an interesting thing to see uh, you know among the employees, the Jewish employees who already who also backed it. I uh, I think that they um I think it becomes harder and harder like once you think about this long term not to imagine some kind of accommodation with the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And it's you know eventually it's going to circle back to that uh that you know the uh, in what in a given moment not accommodating the Palestinians might seem the most realistic thing like when they're shooting rockets at you and then in another given moment accommodating them when you're contemplating that period over when they were shooting rockets at you and you're wondering how can I prevent that from happening and how can I raise my children not to have to worry about that then it becomes the more realistic thing is to listen to them and to accommodate them and I don't know that that isn't on the cards. It'll never be on the cards for all Israelis, for sure. Um, I don't know if it's not on the cards for the majority of Jewish Israelis and Israelis further down the line, because it has been in the past. And so I guess there's two ways people in Israel could process what's going on now, by which I mean both the civil strife within Israel and of course the the you know the the thing with Hamas um and for that matter there's been uh unrest in the West Bank that has led to some deaths in 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 the West Bank uh and and uh i guess the, the two ways they can process all of this is uh accommodation is looks even less plausible than before or accommodation looks even more imperative yeah, than before exactly. and i guess i guess uh it's unclear to you what the net effect of this current round is in those terms, whether it's, whether it's going to add momentum to accommodation within Israel or reduce momentum. It's, it's too soon to say or what? Yeah. It's hard to say. Like I said, there are classes of Israelis that are very outward looking and they're very aware of how these things play out. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's like the metric you want to use you and I, but, Gal Gadot, Wonder Woman, <laughs> the Israeli actress who plays Wonder Woman in 2014, before she was Wonder Woman, but she was already like in movies and a model and beautiful and famous, uh, put up like uh, something on Instagram about standing with the IDF. And she got really like, uh, you know, criticized for that. And it's being held, a, it's been held against her since by pro-Palestinians. And then look at what she put on Instagram more recently, that she, she just wants a solution. She wants something that's going to, to make mothers on both sides not fear for their children or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting kind of metric. If you look at it, uh, that kind of migration, uh, and, um, and there are a lot of other Israelis who want to, you know, who see opportunities for interaction, who want those interactions and who also, I think genuinely, um, uh, you know, they, they, they feel the concerns. I mean, there's a weird sort of interesting split now where like the NGOs that organize, uh, um, for coexistence are under fire from the right mm-hmm. uh, in Israel. Um, but they're also getting, I think, I think there's a lot of grassroots support for them from, um, uh, from other sectors. So, uh, you had, um, lo- you know, this, there was this thing where locally elected officials, both Jewish and Arab called for their leaders to speak out against violence against the other side. And, uh, it wasn't just, you know, people on the left. It was, uh, across the board, and that's because they're feeling, they were feeling pressure from, uh, from certain people within their grassroots who are dealing with coexistence, uh, which is, which is interesting. So yeah, yeah, it could go either way.
Okay. Well, let's end on a note of hope then. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you've, you, uh, your son's just home from college and you want to go out and have a dinner. And I, and I believe maybe today is the official day, uh, on which the mask guidance changes or something, some day in which today is a day of pandemic uh, liberation or something. I think, I, I think, uh, but, but anyway, I know that the ultimately local rules, uh, govern here. So I encourage you to abide by those. Um, but enjoy the, the, the dinner and thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time, Ron. Thanks, Robert.